From VOA, Press Conference USA, here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America, our topic on this edition of the program, the politics and substance surrounding the long-delayed human rights report detailing China's abuses in Xinjiang province. Our guest, Sophie Richardson, China Director at Human Rights Watch, an international non-governmental organization based in New York City that conducts research and advocacy on human rights around the world. On her final day in office as UN Human Rights Chief, Michelle Bachelet released the UN report, which concluded that the crackdown on Uyghurs and other mostly Muslim ethnic groups in China's Xinjiang province amounted to crimes against humanity. According to the AP, the Associated Press, many Geneva-based diplomats believe that it was completed nearly a year ago, but Beijing, which denounced the report's assessment as a fabrication cooked up by Western nations, exerted pressure to withhold it. China claims that Western forces are exploiting the human rights issue to, quote, destabilize Xinjiang and use it to contain China, unquote. We will hear quite a different story from our guest. Sophie Richardson, who has overseen Human Rights Watch's research and advocacy on China since 2006 and has published extensively on human rights and political reform in the country and across Southeast Asia, joins us now via Microsoft Teams. Sophie Richardson, welcome to the program. It's always great to be with VOA. Thanks for having me. Sophie, I deliberately didn't delineate all of the abuses that the UN Human Rights Report has documented because I'd like to leave that to you. Give us your sense of the magnitude, scope, and importance of this report on human rights abuses in China by none other than the United Nations. The report makes for chilling reading. Family separations, mass arbitrary detention, torture, hunger in detention, a refusal to allow people to worship or speak in their own language, and threats to people once they were theoretically released to never speak about their experience for fear of either being imprisoned again or for having their families persecuted, for having shared that information. It's really a chilling document that was, as your setup suggests, long overdue. I think one of the other important components of it is a very careful dismantling of the Chinese government's misuse of terrorism and extremism-related laws and regulations as a basis for detaining people. And essentially, the report concludes that those laws are so broad that normal protected religious activity has been used as a basis for detaining people. It's also the case that ordinary behavior that's simply not criminalized has been used as a basis for detaining people, simply having family members and speaking to them outside the country, even traveling a lot domestically or suddenly using your phone more or using it less. These have all been used as the basis of not just suspicion, but indeed detention. And of course, Sophie, your organization and other human rights organizations have been detailing these atrocities for many, many years. So in a sense, it corroborates your reporting. So you and your organization, Sophie, must have felt vindicated by the UN report on China's human rights abuses in Xinjiang. How do you see the magnitude again of this report and its implications? It's unbelievably important 
for the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to have reached similar conclusions based on different sources. The report actually draws quite heavily on Chinese government sources and on interviews with victims and survivors. As you've noted, groups like Human Rights Watch, fantastic organizations like the Uyghur Human Rights Project and the World Uyghur Congress, scholars, journalists all over the world have contributed very strong research to this debate. But when the world's flagship human rights office publishes a document like this, it's a level of global recognition and an indication of seriousness of the scope and the severity of the abuses, millions of people affected, that typically serves as the call to action you know, for the international community to rally and take next steps. And that's, I think, a great deal of what happens to precisely the people this report talks about depends enormously on the politics of the coming weeks and how the report and its findings are brought onto the UN Human Rights Council's agenda. We are going to talk about those next steps. However, first, I wanted to get your view of the fact that there was no mention of the word genocide, which some countries, including the United States, have accused China of committing in Xinjiang. And that has everything to do with the people. And these are Uyghurs, they're mostly Muslims, and how somehow they're seen as threats to China because of the ethnic differences with the majority of the population. Talk about the population, this mostly Uyghur population, who they are, why they are seen as such a threat, and to what extent you are either disappointed or not by the fact that the word genocide was not used in this report. Sure, let me break that down into the constituent questions. Uyghurs are a Turkic peoples who live in the Western region, primarily live in the Western region of Xinjiang. And I actually particularly appreciated the report's description of the demographic changes in the region over the decades, because where Uyghurs and other Turkic communities, Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, Tajiks, were once roughly 75% of the population of that region, they're now a little bit less than half as a result of state-sponsored migration to that region by primarily ethnic Han from eastern parts of the country. And Uyghurs are, most of them are Muslims. They speak their own distinct language, have their own cultural traditions, heritage, cultural practices. The Chinese government has long regarded Uyghurs and indeed other particular communities across the country essentially as threats. The central government construes those distinct identities as political disloyalty. And this has become particularly clear since Xi Jinping assumed power in 2012. We saw a real acceleration of that thinking, again, not just directed at the Uyghur community, but at Tibetans and people in Hong Kong, Mongolia, Christians across China, human rights defenders across China. But Uyghurs in particular have been identified as particularly problematic and assumed to be closely interrelated to international terrorism. You know, and let me be very clear, there have been acts of violence in the region, which we've condemned, but those are small scale. There's no indication they are connected to any sort of disputes other than local ones. And the prosecutions of people on those charges have, I think, set a new low for a lack of fair trial rights in China, which takes some doing. These problems accelerated in 2014 after there was an attack on a train station following a visit to the region by Xi Jinping. And essentially what the Chinese government launched later that year, a 
strike hard campaign targeted an entire ethnic community, not investigating the specific instances of violence. We regularly remind governments that while states do have an obligation to provide public security, they do not have the right to subject whole communities to collective punishment. And indeed, the strike hard campaign has involved industrial scale human rights violations for which there really is no remedy domestically. And what about the genocide question, Sophie? Just address that to the extent that wasn't mentioned, that may or may not be significant, but the United States has recognized the type of abuse, atrocities against the Uyghur people as genocide. Sure. I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this concisely. First of all, I think it's important to understand that genocide and crimes against humanity are essentially the worst or the most serious atrocity crimes under international law. And the allegation that we have made and that the UN report suggests of crimes against humanity certainly are very serious charges. It's also worth pointing out that the UN report says that the Chinese government's conduct may rise to the level of crimes against humanity. They use that term not to undercut the claim, but rather their view is that that's a determination that has to be reached by a court. You know, many people have used the term genocide, some parliaments, some government officials, including President Biden and Secretary Blinken, I think to indicate a sense that the Chinese government's goal really is to eradicate a particular population. One of the challenges as a matter of international justice is that to the extent cases of genocide have actually been litigated in courts, there's a very high threshold in showing the intent of a state to destroy in whole or in part a particular population. And it is an ongoing discussion about whether that threshold actually has been reached. But I think there are people also who use the term to indicate the level of fear and agony that this community is enduring as its language is being forbidden, as its religion is being prohibited, as people are being essentially told that they may not act on any aspect of their identity for fear of state reprisals. Thank you very much for making that very important distinction with regard to the word genocide and what is happening to the Uyghur people. What is clear, though, obviously, are these rights abuses in Xinjiang, and they have been reported by your organization and others, and now given the imprimatur, obviously, of the largest and most prestigious world body, the United Nations, drawing attention to the fact that China is targeting Uyghurs and other Muslims in the name of combating religious extremism, which is pretty ludicrous. Speaking of which, let's get into (laughs) (laughs) how Beijing, particularly under Xi Jinping, is reacting. They were extremely vociferous in denying, in uh, rejecting the report. Talk about the language they used and their particular strategy. I'm not sure the Chinese government so much has a strategy so much as it intends, as it does on many human rights issues, to lie and bully its way out of any sort of accountability. And I think part of the reason 
we sit here in 2022 watching the Chinese government commit progressively more serious human rights crimes is precisely because nobody in that government has been held accountable for past or current violations. There's an expectation in Xi Jinping's government that they will enjoy impunity, that they will commit crimes against humanity and get away with it. And so I think much depends on shattering that illusion and actually holding the perpetrators responsible and seeing some justice for the affected communities. From the beginning of this crisis, really sort of circa 2016, 2017, the Chinese government's first response was to lie and to simply say that there were not mass arbitrary detentions. When pressure continued to mount over 2017, 2018, the Chinese government changed its explanation and said, well, you know, people are being subjected to vocational education and training and made it sound as if this was somehow pleasant and voluntary under more pressure showing that clearly it was not vocational and it was not voluntary, <laughs> and that this was a form of arbitrary detention to which roughly a million people were being subjected, the Chinese government then shifted gears to essentially try to block scrutiny. It would not allow an independent fact-finding mission to visit. It worked hard to smear the reputations of people outside the country who publicly shared their own experiences. It continually runs a propaganda campaign globally, asserting that everything is just fine in Xinjiang. I think this sort of culminated in the visit this past spring by the now former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet. The Chinese government decided to try to run out the clock on her tenure and this issue by offering her a visit to the region. That visit did go ahead. We were deeply skeptical about it, as many were, because all the Chinese government offered her was a highly constrained visit in which she would not really be able to hear views other than what the government had to offer up or would allow her to hear. And she went and she heard those views and wrapped up that visit with a deeply problematic press conference in which she offered very little critical information about the current situation, either in the Uyghur region or in other parts of the country. Essentially, she offered up a diplomat's version of the human rights record there rather than a human rights advocate's, which was her role. And I think that in turn generated that that much more pressure on her office to finally release this report, which had been in the works for a couple of years. And when the report was finally released, it's a very telling contrast because as a very serious piece of research, it stands in fairly stark contrast to the views that the high commissioner offered up while she was still there. And it's particularly important, I think, because the report is in several respects consistent with the kind of tough reporting we see that office do on other topics. And so from our perspective, among other things, a strong report is evidence of the resilience of the UN's human rights system to resist the kind of Chinese government pressures and lies that we've seen throughout the last couple of years on this topic. In our next half of the program, Sophie Richardson, we will see if that resilience with respect to holding China accountable will remain. But first, you are listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is Sophie Richardson, China Director of Human Rights Watch. We are discussing the long-awaited UN report on China's human rights abuses in Xinjiang province, including detaining more than one million Uyghurs and other Muslims and forcibly sterilizing women. What are the next steps for accountability? I'm Carol Castiel, and this is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast 
is available on our website at voaafrica.com slash PCUSA. You may also listen to the program on any of your favorite podcast apps. And please follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel and connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Well, here's a shout out to a new Facebook fan, Nizar K. Edail Aparambil from Malaysia. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our special guest, Sophie Richardson, China Director of Human Rights Watch. Sophie, now let's talk about indeed how China can be held accountable because being held accountable is probably equally important to the actual report documenting their abuses in Xinjiang against the Uyghur population. Where does this next phase of accountability stand? Well, I think it may help to understand that typically, it's a broad reality, but typically when the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights publishes a report that sets out such serious violations and reaches as worrying a conclusion as the possibility of international crimes, including crimes against humanity, what would happen is that that report would be formally recommended and put on the Human Rights Council's agenda, and there would be a discussion about establishing some sort of investigative mechanism. There are other pathways through the UN system towards a formal investigation, but I think the current politics make those relatively unlikely. What's happened in this case is that because there isn't a specific recommendation in the report to, for example, the Human Rights Council, that it take the report on board and set out next steps, it's actually up to the Human Rights Council itself to bring the report onto its own agenda for a debate. It's important to understand the Human Rights Council is a political body. It's made up of 47 states. They're elected for two-year terms. And often you will find that governments that have seriously abusive track records are indeed members of the Human Rights Council. So, for example, the Chinese government is currently a member. So the challenge at the moment is that where in other situations you would see a fairly, not necessarily an easy route to establishing an investigative mechanism if we're talking about some other country, but the Chinese government's power is so great that in fact what's happening right now is that just a few days ago, the United States, along with seven other governments, has put forward a resolution that will have to be voted at the council, simply saying, let's have a debate about the report. It's not asking governments to take a position on the substance, but rather simply to have a debate, which is what the council is meant to do. Because this has to be voted, there is now a very active discussion underway about which governments will support having a debate, which ones will abstain from that vote, and which ones will vote against. So it's a little bit of a complicated mix, but 47 governments all over the world are now debating about what their position will be. And I think the U.S. has chosen to put forward the idea of a resolution just about a debate to try to ensure that the initiative will get enough votes so that the topic stays firmly on the Human Rights Council's agenda for at least the next year or so, which in turn generates creates the time to generate some momentum for an actual investigative mechanism. 
mechanism. It's a little bit inside baseball about how this institution works, but you know, we will see now whether some of the governments that, for example, have been willing to join non-binding statements condemning Chinese government abuses in Xinjiang are actually willing to vote those views. And so much will depend on how governments in, for example, Latin America or Eastern and Central Europe and Western Asia or in Africa decide to respond to this initiative. Exactly. Lots of politics. And uh, I'd like to mention that the deputy U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Jeffrey Prescott, said at the United Nations, quote, how these atrocities are addressed goes ultimately to the credibility of the U.N. system, to the credibility of our international system itself, close quote. So underscoring that, you know, this transcends politics and this goes to the heart of the credibility of the United Nations. It absolutely should. I mean, I'll just jump in and add to that, that, you know, in our view, a failure to bring forward even a debate, simply a debate on the report and its findings would effectively create a different standard of accountability for the Chinese government within the UN human rights system, where many other governments have been on the receiving end of such scrutiny or about, you know, debates about their own domestic human rights records, Beijing would get away with it. And let's just recall that the international human rights system exists precisely because governments fail to protect their populations or themselves responsible for abusing them. And so this is the arena in which governments' domestic human rights records get debated. That's the purpose of the exercise. And so whenever I hear a Chinese government official say that this is a violation of sovereignty and that the Human Rights Council or the Office of the High Commissioner have no right to participate in these debates, you know, my reaction is to say, well, then withdraw from the UN and unsign, you know, the half dozen international human rights treaties you freely signed up to for this purpose. This is what the system exists to do, like it or not. Well, exactly. And you have nothing to fear if you really are just, you know, protecting your national sovereignty and whatever you've done, which the world body sees as human rights abuses and violations, potential crimes against humanity, then, uh, you know, you should have no fear in debating this. I also think that some of the most powerful issues that have been debated at the council over the years involve governments that actually enter into these kinds of discussions and reviews in good faith. They show up wanting feedback. They show up wanting advice. They show up wanting to know how to fix problems. I mean, nobody likes to be embarrassed, but you know, this system exists for a reason. And I think especially watching governments that see their own recent histories as having benefited from these kinds of interventions stand up for other persecuted communities is very powerful. For example, watching the Gambia take a case to the International Court of Justice on behalf of the horrifically persecuted Rohingya community against the Myanmar government. This is a government, meaning the Gambia, that speaks very evocatively about its own experience with justice and assistance from this system and using it in defense of other communities it's concerned about. That's extraordinary. And Sophie, let me just say that I guess in contrast, recently, China's ambassador to the UN in Geneva delivered a statement during the 51st session of the Human Rights Council saying that the Xinjiang assessment by the United Nations was based on, quote, disinformation and draws erroneous conclusions, close quote. 
and VOA reports that the statement was signed by 28 other countries with close to half of the supporters from African countries, such as Burundi, Cameroon, Comoros, Egypt, Equatorial Guinea, Guinea, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Sierra Leone, South Sudan, and Zimbabwe, some of whom are but <laughs> can I say, not paragons of virtue. Nonetheless, talk about the political impediments to not just having the debate on their violations, that is Beijing's violations, but the creation of a commission of inquiry itself. Sure. Well, first of all, let's recall that as we have this conversation, we're you know about three weeks out from the 20th Party Congress in Beijing. And I think having a debate about the Chinese government's human rights record at the UN Human Rights Council is not exactly what Xi Jinping would have had in mind right about now. But we've also watched over the last decade as the Chinese government has gotten not just more aggressive with respect to how it operates broadly in international institutions, but quite specifically how it operates within the UN's human rights ecosystem. One of the earlier joint statements about the situation in Xinjiang came at a time fairly early in the pandemic. And one of the governments that had signaled an intent to sign the statement critical of the Chinese government's record was Ukraine. And it then withdrew because the Chinese government threatened to withhold all of its vaccine donations to Ukraine if the Ukraine government signed that statement. You know, we see this time and again, not just threats around aid and investment, but also critically needed assistance such as PPE or vaccines. One of the other interesting pathologies about Beijing's conduct within the UN human rights system that isn't well examined yet, we think, is a practice of of going ahead and signing other governments up to Chinese government statements without consulting them first, which leaves the other government in question in the often invidious position of having to ask to withdraw. So we've seen this in a couple of cases where governments who were listed as signatories to statements then vanished from them. First of all, as I said earlier, at any given time, a number of members of the UN Human Rights Council are themselves notorious human rights abusers. And so one can't really expect much from them. But the Chinese government's economic power in the world is such that often governments feel that they literally cannot afford to say no. And sometimes when we speak to governments behind closed doors that have signed Chinese government statements, they're very aware of the human rights violations committed by the Chinese authorities. And and they don't dispute those. It's that they literally just can't afford to take a different position. And I think we'll probably see some of those dynamics play out in the coming weeks, too. You hit the nail on the head, Sophie, with regard to what can only be described as blackmail by China vis-a-vis -vis so many countries, particularly in Africa, in which it invests and provides aid. But there's always a price for that. So I guess we'll see to what extent that plays out. Uh, I mean, it's certainly not a strategy that originated in Beijing. Let's be clear about that. You know, it's hardly the only government to use some of those kinds of economic levers or discussions around security. But I think the nakedness of it, and I think that the goal is to eliminate scrutiny and to speak about human rights as a pretext, really shows how hostile the Chinese government is to the international human rights system as a whole. No question about it. And as we close, Sophie, 
Do you have any thoughts with regard to how probable it will be for an actual debate on rights violations by China that the United States is calling for the Human Rights Council to organize will actually take place? As you mentioned, you know, in the backdrop of Xi Jinping's Communist Party Congress coming to a head, as you said, it's not the best timing for human rights discussion to take place as Xi Jinping is going into that Congress. And nonetheless, what do you think is going to be taking place? Do you have any sense with regard to that debate and any type of creation of a commission of inquiry in the near future? Sure. Well, a couple of different thoughts. I mean, one is that it is not a moment too soon for the millions of Uyghurs affected by this human rights nightmare. And I think by extension for all of the people inside and outside of China who are themselves victims of Chinese government violations. And in that same vein, you know, I think part of our message to all of the governments thinking through their positions on these issues one wants to underscore the Chinese government is now committing human rights violations well beyond its borders, and governments know this. And in that sense, it is in their interests, even if they do not feel comfortable with or they fear taking a position about an issue that maybe they believe to be solely within the Chinese government's purview as a domestic matter, they should be concerned about the integrity of the international human rights system because they need it too. They need it to work. There will be a point, if there has not been already, when they need to be able to go to that arena for accountability with respect to Beijing. It's in their interest to make sure that this system functions in a way that all states are held accountable and that no state is above the law. I hope that is a motivating factor. But to try to end on a somewhat positive note, Human Rights Watch works quite a bit in this arena, and there have been occasions on which we have really held our breath and fretted a lot about vote outcomes and then been very positively surprised at the extent to which governments have stood up, and particularly given that this is an initiative that's simply about having a debate we really hope that governments believe that that's valuable and that that's what this institution is for and that they will support that idea. Sophie Richardson is China Director at Human Rights Watch. Sophie, thank you so much for your time and valuable insights on China's human rights abuses in Xinjiang province. We greatly appreciate it. It's terrific to be with you. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Please join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on The Voice of America.